I'm so excited for this show. You asked me a while ago, I think we were doing the 68 show and you had, you had me try to fit it into like buckets. You were like, is it, you know, a top tier show, middle show, this show, this 1978 show, this is a top bucket show. Ooh. Yeah. I totally agree. What I wonder is how much of that is influenced by watching it, like being able to watch the entire concert in like very high quality. And I don't just mean the way it looks, but like the fact that they have these cool edits and like interesting cuts and transitions and they're fading between cameras and stuff. I don't know. I I also, did you find, I could not find for the life of me who recorded all of this, like why it it exists on video. Do you have any idea? No, I thought I saw something and, just looking into the show that it was like the Duke university, either like radio or archive section just had it. But I I don't know who would have been in charge of like the multiple camera angles and the after the fact edits. I have no idea. Yeah. It's crazy. We should say, I guess this is the show from, if you didn't already see it in the episode title, April 12th, 1978 at Cameron Indoor Stadium on the campus of Duke University here in my very own town of Durham, North Carolina. But yeah, the video, which is, there's a link to the full show um, in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this, but there's a full video and it's, I think that they have three cameras or at least two. And one of them is like a roving cameraman because there's that there's a part in the second set where he takes a shot of the band from behind. So you're like looking over Bill's drum set and you see Jerry, Donna, and Bob on the stage from behind. And you can't really see the audience, but it's it's still pretty cool that like they even took like artistic shots like that throughout this night. So, I mean a massive amount of credit due to anyone who was involved in that shout out to them. I'm so happy that we have it, but part of what I think makes the show so special is these people are having, and by these people, I mean the band they're having a ball playing this show. A grand old time. Yeah. It's like infectious. You can't really not smile during a lot of it. And so it's so cool that we have this, living document not just in the audio and there are great soundboards of this show circulating but also then this video of them all playing which is just wonderful it's cool that we get a full show and there are other videos available from around this era like um, the closing of winterland show and that's in color even and also very well edited and there are some 72 ones that they recorded. Um, obviously, you can see videos of those. But it's there's not a ton of video of them playing in the 70s, like not complete shows at least. And so it's really kind of unique in that way that we get to watch it. So um, yeah, I'm very glad to be talking about this show too. And I'm happy that we get to watch the video in addition to the audio. Did you? How did you consume this? Did you mostly... Well, I don't think the question needs more <laughs> uh, context. <laughs> how, how did you... How did you consume actually, this show? I actually mostly consumed it through audio form. So when you asked, you know, was it influenced by the video? Not really. I think the video for me, I probably listened to this three or four times before I then watched it. So it was probably more for me of like icing on the cake rather than the cake itself. But I could see, I definitely see at the end of set two how this video could you know only 
add to your enjoyment and only make you think this is an even better show than what you're listening to um, because of the fun they're having on stage. And we'll talk about all that. Yes, we will. Well, let's get into it. Wednesday, April 12th, 1978 at Cameron Indoor Stadium. It's that good old late 70s God Show Dead lineup that we know and love. We've talked about 1973 once. I think, coincidentally, this is episode 31. Um, and this is now, this. I, the last time we talked about it, I think, was episode 13, if I remember correctly. Um, we talked about 78 for our like 4th of July pre-summer hiatus episode, right? Oh, Yeah. Yep, we did. Um, and then also wasn't the very first episode that we did about 1978? Mm. Yes, February it was. At the From Unidome. Iowa, right, right. Shout out Iowa to the um to the women's team advancing to the championship game. The national champs by the time this episode comes out, I hope. Um <laughs> so um yeah, uh this is our third time back in 1978, a year that we really like and also a year that when Jonathan from Broke Down Podcast came and joined us, he said it's one of his favorite years and spring spring 78 he said is one of his favorite tours. And I can totally see why. It's just some great great concerts throughout the fall or excuse me, the spring of 78. I mean, really good shows all around 78, but I will say there is a thought that I have heard in the dead community from multiple different sources of people who find that the fall of 78 is less satisfying than the spring. The dead, one of their most famous events in 1978 was their trip to Egypt um, in September. Right. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of people who say that that is when the tide turned a bit with Jerry's heroin use and that therefore his playing became a bit more uneven from that point onward. Obviously, I have no idea. We weren't there, but I do think that there are a lot of drugs on the scene in 78 for sure. It's pretty apparent when you watch this show as well. I think a lot of those uh, good vibes and happiness are probably (laughs) cocaine induced. (laughs) Hard to say, but, you know, it's certainly out there. Uh, 78 is an interesting year in music um, and definitely a coke fueled year in music for sure. So let's talk about it. The top album and top song in the land right now. And as of April 12th, 1978, we're both Bee Gees. The top album, Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever. This is in week number 13 of 24 at the top of the charts by far the best-selling album of the year. And the top Billboard song is the titular song, Night Fever, by the Bee Gees. They also had the number two song, Staying Alive. So the Bee Gees were killing it. Uh, Every time we talk about 78, now this is the third time, it's like, well, it was the year of the Bee Gees. It was the disco year. (laughs) How about song number 70 on the Billboard top or Hot 100 chart from this week? Bombs Away by none other than Bob Weir. Hey, uh, solo, the first single off of his sophomore album, Heaven Help the Fool, and his only charting single as a solo artist. So, wow, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the charts, it's just like it's all Bee Gees. Like, either Andy Gibb or the Bee Gees have like five of the top 20 songs. And so, it's really this is their this is their year. Yeah. Um, this is not the most disco fied dead show. There's not a ton of that in this later. I, in, I don't think so. I think it, this is more a hard rock show. Than a yeah, disco I, do, show. 
I definitely agree. The the July show that we talked about had much more of a disco flavor than this one. So they were definitely influenced by that sound, but and I mean the Dead to a certain degree are a dance band and disco is dance music, so it kind of makes sense that they would be cap like that it would seep into their music, but in any case, that's what's going on in the world of music. We've talked about 1978 quite a bit, actually. So uh, I don't think we need to dive too much more into like the music, uh, you know, what was going on in that zeitgeist at the time. Birthdays from April 12th, Herbie Hancock. Hey. Um, actor Ed O'Neill, coach and modern family, um, among others. No, all in the family and, right, and modern, modern family. family. Yeah. Coaches, um, can't think of that guy's name, but I always thought he looked like Ed O'Neill. I don't know. Um, also, David Letterman, um, Claire Whoa. Danes, and the lead singer of Panic at the Disco, Brendan Urie. So some some good birthdays. Strong birthday day. Yeah. Events in history. 1955, the polio vaccine is declared safe and effective and starts to you know, take polio out of our concerns in the world, which is a great thing, obviously. And how about this one, Dave? April 12th. 1776, the Halifax Resolves authorized the North Carolina Congressional Congress to declare independence from Britain, the first action of freedom from the monarchy in the United States. So wave that oh. flag, wave it wide yeah. and high. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So it's funny. I actually had no idea that that was a thing. And I am an American history person. I, like, I enjoy American history and I am, you know, a North Carolina citizen and I never knew that that was a thing. North Carolina has license plates that are, we have, well, now three, but it used to be two options, first in flight for the, the Wright brothers and first in freedom. And I was like, I remember uh. always seeing that and being like, first in freedom, we had slavery until the civil war. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like that doesn't, freedom for who? doesn't yeah. make sense. This is why first in freedom, because we were the first ones to be free of the monarchy, I guess. So, Interesting. Yeah. If you were a huh. white man, then you were first in freedom in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> um so anyways i thought that was mildly interesting because they uh conclude the show with u.s blues um yeah almost you know 202 years after the fact so pretty cool 1978 as we've talked about before a busy year for the grateful dead especially compared to the years prior they had 40 shows in 74 as they began to kind of wind down toward their hiatus only four in 1975 41 in 76 as they got back into it 60 and 77 and then 1978 they had played 82 concerts plus a bunch of canceled dates in europe and um, those were meant to be around the egypt trip but they didn't end up uh, doing them terrapin station came out in 77 those songs are now fully integrated into set lists as we would see on this night in dead history and shakedown street came out later this year those recordings were later um, in July and then August. So that's when you start to really get that disco sound into the dead's music, um, right. with shakedown street, especially, I think lots of live releases have come out from 1978, four Dave's picks, two Dick's picks. There's a great July 78 box set that I am happy to own the Egypt box set, um, a couple road trips and the closing of winterland has been independently released as well. So lots of 78. If you are, if you're a 78 head, uh, you can go find a lot of official releases from this year. This tour was pretty limited to April 78. So we talked about that February show and, um, and now, you know, this is not part of the same run. They had taken a break and then they got back out on the road in April 
this run went from April 6th through the 24th, 14 shows in 19 nights. Um, they played all around Florida, then two nights in Atlanta, then this show, then they this kind of kicked off a whole college run that they did. Um, Virginia Tech, then William and Mary. That show was released two years ago as Dave's Picks Volume 37. Hunting, Huntington, West Virginia, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Ohio, at Rupp Arena at University of Kentucky. Nashville, that show was released as Dave's Picks Volume 15. And then Normal Illinois at Illinois State, and that show was released as Dave's Picks 7. So I think that there's a real oh. shot that, that this show is officially released someday, given that we you know, have three of the 14 shows from this tour that have come out. Um, but I suppose we'll see. The venue that they were playing at, Cameron Indoor Stadium, uh, it's a 9,300-seat venue on the campus of Duke University, the West Campus, to be specific, because Duke has two campuses now. Um, this is kind of like the classic campus. If you, This is where the upperclassmen are, the law school is. You know, um, This is where the football stadium is as well. So if you go toward Duke, you'll see Cameron Indoor right in the middle of the campus, which I love. It's actually one of my biggest gripes with our shared alma mater, Wake Forest, is that the basketball arena is not on campus. Um, I grew up or grew up, I went to college at St. Bonaventure university where the arena was on campus. And I think that that really adds when all the students can just walk there, you don't have to worry about getting a shuttle. Um, I just, you know, I think that it leads to a much better environment, um, with the students being more likely to be at games and be rowdy and Cameron indoor stadium certainly has that reputation, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty much universally viewed as one of the great venues to watch not just college basketball, but live sports in America. Yeah. And I think the small stadium size helps add to that too. Like it's not a, like the Wake Forest stadium is, it's not a big stadium. It's like a, a, an intimate little venue to see one of the usually premier teams in the country. Yeah, very true. So uh, it was originally named Duke Indoor Stadium and it stayed with that name until 1972 when it was renamed for Eddie Cameron. He was the Duke, interestingly, basketball, football, and track and field coach, because apparently that's just how things went back then. (laughs) And then he took over as the AD um, in the 60s and then planned, he made the plans for this stadium. So pretty cool that he did all of that. And it's, you know, fitting that it's named after him. I think that's much more cool than just being named after some, you know, big booster. Like it's cool that it got named after someone who really kind of did the damn thing for Duke Athletics. Yeah. Not a ton of concerts have been played here over the years, at least not that I could find record of. There might be more that like Duke, you know, the campus board has put on that they just don't really talk about a lot when you read like things about Cameron online. But the ones that I could find examples of, um, the dead played here three times. This was the middle show. The first appearance was December 8th, 1973, a legendary show among the Duke student body. Um, So I found, um, of course, our friend Grateful Seconds has lots of good stuff up about this show. And he posted some student articles around this show and the previous show. The one from this show is a, it's kind of a cool example of kind of how legends grow, legends build, because that 73 show is a monster show. When you look at like the audio, it's four hours long. They played like 30 something songs. They just played forever. (laughs) Um, But 
legend has it, according to like the, this article, it's like the dead played a five and a half hour long show. Um, and maybe they did take a really long set, set break and it was that long. Oh yeah. But it's cool how in that time in the, minds of the people who are there it's like they played forever they never stopped and there's no internet you know to be like let's see how long exactly the show was there might have been tape circulating where you could be like well it takes up four tapes or something and that's five hours um but it's cool that like the legend had grown they were supposed to start at nine which is the same show time as this concert in 76 and they hit the stage at 8 45 and then played until one so that's pretty good stuff yeah um, that's the type of thing that you do if you want to build a real devoted audience at a, at, in a town or in a community, because it was like, there was an article from the Duke student newspaper and one from the UNC student newspaper. UNC is just a few miles down the road in, in Chapel Hill. And so I'm sure there were students from both at this concert. And it was talking about how, you know, the dead are just like these legends of Duke that came in and, you know, these barn burners that came in and played for a million hours stop burning the place down yeah yeah uh then they played again in 1982 at cameron which is interesting it's kind of crazy to think that um in 1982 they played at cameron indoor which is 9300 capacity that was also 17 years into their career as a band and then just uh seven years later they were playing at the massive nc state football stadium that holds probably 70,000 people um just like goes to show that ridiculous rise in their popularity from the early eighties to the late eighties. Even Um, other concerts at this venue, I have Springsteen in 76 uh, UB 40. Interestingly in 1988, the cure in 89, which is pretty cool. And then Mm -hmm. the the black crows in 92, I couldn't find anything more recent there, which was interesting to me, maybe just because Duke has other venues now and like maybe people play at their football stadium or something. Yeah. I mean, again, if you're trying to, if you're an event organizer trying to sell tickets, having a cap on tickets less than 10,000 is kind of counterproductive. So I imagine there aren't going to be a lot more big names headlining Cameron Indoor. Yeah, probably not. Just kind of a bummer. It seems like a cool place to see a show. Yeah. This show, again, in 1978, it started at 9 p.m., as I said. Tickets cost $6.50, which is actually kind of expensive. It's around $30 US today. So Hmm. one of the articles on Grateful Seconds, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes, it talked about how expensive these tickets were. And it was like, the tickets are pretty pricey, more so than you'd expect, but it's worth it if you go in. So you know, it makes sense. When I was in college, I think that our like spring weekend concerts and stuff were like 10 or 15 bucks and for some decently big names. So it kind of, it makes sense to me that like, $30 would be a, you know, $30 equivalent would be quite a bit um, nowadays. Well, I mean, that gives us kind of the, the landscape of where we are. We should talk about the show, but before we do that, we need to talk about the days between. I forgot. (laughs) Let's do it. First of all, I want to give a shout out to a local band from here in Durham uh, called the Duke Street Dogs, holding up their CD for Dave to see. I went and saw them at a barbecue place. They're like a four-piece bluegrass band. And I went and saw them at a barbecue place not far from Duke's campus. 
um, I may add. And they were just, you know, they were really good. Uh, You can tell that they've been playing together for, for a long while now. And they're just a really good band. They play at the Blue Note Grill here in Durham every Friday. If you're a local and you want to go see them, they played Minglewood Blues when I saw them. Wow. And um, it sounds completely different when it's like a bluegrass band playing it. It's not new Minglewood Blues or even let alone new, new Minglewood Blues um, as the Dead played it when they put their stamp on it. But it definitely does still have that same DNA. Um, and they played it really, really well. So shout out to the Duke Street Dogs. You know, they may not be deadheads themselves, although I wouldn't be surprised if they were, but um, they are kind of in that same American tradition as the Grateful Dead playing something like that. Other quick dead story for me from the days between on Thursday, I went on a group bike ride with a, a group here in town. And when we got to a stoplight, I noticed that one of the guys in front of me was playing music from his phone and it, he was playing Tennessee Jed. Nice. Paused it, I think, because we all got to a stoplight and he was just trying to listen to music while he was riding, not trying to play it necessarily for everyone else. But it's unsafe to, you know, have headphones in when you're biking. So he was just playing it out loud from his phone and he paused it. And I was like, who paused Tennessee Jed? And he turned around and I was like, oh, sorry, man. And then put it back on. <laughs> um, and it was a long version of Jed because we got to another stoplight like 10 minutes later and it was still going on. Oh, wow. So he was really committed to Jed. So uh, a Jed head like us, shout out to him. Yeah. So those are my two notes from the days between. What do you got? I think you, I don't really have anything, but I think you kind of, you have a third note because um, you got recognized at a Mo show that you went to a couple weeks ago. Yes. That was amazing. I'm wearing the same shirt I was wearing on that day in my history. Uh, I went to see Mo, which I talked about during my last, um, our last days between, and I wore my working man's pod shirt. It felt like the right environment, right? I mean, why not? Well, yeah. Ton of dead, ton of dead shirts at this place too. And this venue was awesome. The Lincoln Theater in Raleigh, North Carolina. It they, it's a very heady venue. There are Grateful Dead stickers all over this place, and um, they were playing. I was there on a Tuesday. That Friday, a really good Dead cover band was playing there, and um, there are a couple other ones that are coming up in the next few months. So really cool place. But um, yeah, my shirt has our logo on the back, like a massive photo of our, of our logo. And, uh, while I was waiting in line to get a beer, someone was like, Oh, working man's pod. Hey, nice. And I turned around and was like, Oh, she was like, yeah, I love it. And I was like a fan. And she was like, yeah. And that was kind of the entire exchange because <laughs> then I got interrupted by the bartender being like, Hey, what do you want? Hey, come on. What do you want? Um, and so the conversation kind of ended there. I didn't have any stickers on me or else I would have given her one. But, um, yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. The first time that, WP has gotten some recognition in person uh, yeah. for me. So that was pretty cool. That is cool. Hey, and whoever you are, if you're listening now, get in touch with us. Yeah, we can send you a sticker that I didn't have on me that time. Or maybe the next time we're both at the Lincoln Theater, I'll give you one. All right. Well, that's it. With that in mind and with all that being said, I mean, let's get on with the show.
All right. So the set list on this night in Grateful Dead history began as most shows, many shows in 1978 did with Jack Straw. We mentioned, I think two episodes ago, that this was actually the Dead's most frequent show opener of any song, which kind of surprised me when I found that out. Surprised us both. Yeah. That this was the most common opener. Yeah, but it was, and it was also the most common show opener of 1978. 17 of their 82 shows began with Jack Straw from Wichita. And, you know, I can see why it's a, it's it's good as an opener. And this is a, just kind of a fun, energetic building. It just kind of keeps building and building and building and building. And then that last verse and last solo are like the most energetic part, but the crowd was loving this from the beginning. They are going bananas from the time the band hits the stage. I mean, really most of the show, they're just cheering so loudly. And actually it's funny. One of the notes in one of those student newspaper articles that I read was like, the person said the crowd was going so crazy that I actually wondered if I would be able to hear the music over the crowd. And then the music started and I was like, (laughs) Oh yeah, okay, this is fine. But that just goes to show how loud the crowd was on this night. And they are, I mean, Dave, this is like one of the most fired up crowds I've ever heard at a dead show. Yeah. And it makes listening to a completely fired up Jack Straw even more enjoyable. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. The end is such an onslaught of power and Detroit lightning. That 430 to five minute mark, just relentless. It's like they came storming right out of the gate. Jerry's mic doesn't work for like most of the song, which... right kind of stinks but it also kind of lets you hear what bobby and the drummers are doing everything else yeah so i just i've probably listened to this 10 to 15 times this jack straw just as the opener just repeating it over and over i i enjoyed it so much are you listening to jack straw and direwolf are you just listening to jack straw because they're of a piece i think oh i mean i have listened to the whole show quite a few times so both but 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 you're just listening to jack straw then cutting it off sometimes and then going back and clicking play on jack straw so it plays again (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough yeah i feel like the dire wolf like the vibe is the same in a way like um it's kind of this old weird america thing and jerry's mic is also in and out of this song it's really after beat it on down the line like peggio is when his mic is like good for the rest of the good to go yeah but I think that that makes this direwolf and Jack Straw feel kind of like connected in a certain way to me. Mm. Donna's singing is on point um, during this song and her mic is also super clear. And so I think that it's a really good direwolf as well. And I think that this is like a really kind of just a cool intro. I looked it up. I don't know what happened to the note. I could have sworn that I did though of um, how many times they had played jack straw into direwolf and it was something like 40 times or something like that so i mean common but not like super common necessarily a cool way to open a show uh, i think these these two songs i know that you're not as much of a of a direwolf head as i am but even still did you did you think this was an enjoyable direwolf yeah yeah i did this one and the last one we um the last one we talked about i've been I've been fans of I Phil's work here was just jaw dropping. He's throwing little pizzazz in left and right throughout the whole song, um, which you can hear even better without Jerry's mic working. So yeah, I enjoyed this dire wolf. 
I'm coming around to, right. to Dire Wolf. Coming, coming, coming around. So right. this is the second time that they had opened a show with Jack Straw and then Dire Wolf, and then they did it 10 times, most of them actually seven times uh, within 78 and then three times in 84 and that was it. So not a super, mm. super common opening kind of sequence for them. Um, more, you know, just kind of a kind of a unique thing. They had played Jack Straw to Direwolf a few times not to open a set throughout the mid 70s, but this is kind of a new way to open a show. But I'm here for it. I think that it's a cool little one-two punch. And um, it's kind of interesting. You get Jack Straw, which is like Bob and Jerry, and then Direwolf is Jerry. Then you get the Phil song, Beat It On Down the Line. Excuse me, the Bobby song. The reason why I said Phil is because before this song, we get Phil being a cop for a minute, but for the people. The people are chanting like, turn off the lights, turn off the lights. And then Phil walks up from his part of the stage to the front and is like, turn down the lights? Well, whoever's in charge, you just heard the voice of the people. <laughs> he like gives a whole lecture of like, the people are telling you to turn off the lights. So how about you turn off those lights up there? And um, I think eventually they do, but it takes them a little while because there's another song a couple on from now, I think before Ro Jimmy feels like, by the way, we've noticed you still haven't turned off those lights. Yeah. yeah. Bob's like, Hey, you're not uh you're not slipping our notice. The lights are still on. And we'll talk about later what Phil's response is, but yeah. it's a little aggressive. Well, it's funny. There's a whole on um, 36 from the vault, another great grateful dead podcast. They always used to talk about how whenever it was like Phil talking to the crowd, it was Phil being a cop and being like, stop dancing on the seats. Hey, everyone calm down. <laughs> um, and this is kind of the same thing, but it's just different because he's being a cop toward the, toward the venue. It's like, Hey, yeah. people are telling you to turn off the lights. So what the hell turn them off. Um, anyway, the crowd is so pumped up and Phil doing all that gets them like whipped up into even more of a frenzy. They're just loving it that he's got their back. Uh, this beat it on down the line. I've got no notes. It's just like a kind of a pretty straight ahead, short little beat it on down the line. Um, it's upbeat and you know, it's everything you want. It's everyone's playing well and Bob and Donna are crushing it on the mic. That's all I got. Continues the upbeat nature of what we've gotten before. Cause even the dire wolf is a pretty upbeat and the Jack straw, like both of those can be much more reserved songs. And these versions are both pretty, pretty jaunty. And then beat it on down the line is always a pretty, pretty upbeat little song. Mm-hmm. So then we slow it down after this with uh, Peggy O. I think that this is um, another, in addition to the Jack Straw, like another like great, great moment in this show and in this first set, which is a really good first set. The solo from Jerry is so soulful. Like it feels like he's plumbing from the depths of his heart, what the way he's playing. Um, right. And it's, it seems like he's really into it. When you watch the video, he's loving it so much that like the band tries to close out the solo and you can see him say, wait, like you can read his lips. He goes, wait, and then keeps going and like finishes up the solo. And I think that that's so cool. Seeing little things like that really kind of adds to my enjoyment of this show. And it's things that you would not know if you're just listening to the cold tape, but when you get to watch what's happening, you get to see their interactions with each other and see him doing that. He's doing a lot of band leader stuff throughout this entire show. 
But that is one of the early moments that stood out to me of like, he's just loving where the solo is going. And I think it's Phil that is like trying to lead them out of it and back to, um, I think the second or third verse. And he's like, wait, and then finishes up what he's doing. And it's a very, very good moment that, that last verse after the solo that I'm talking about is also very well sung and, you know, more, just more of that Jerry soul. But I thought this was a really good Peggy. Yeah, no, I did too. Um, I'm glad you brought up Phil because what Phil's doing here, he's like off doing his own thing sometimes, but it fits, fits in so well, both in the verses. And then when Jerry starts jamming, Phil is kind of off carving his own path I know you're not like the biggest skier, but it's kind of like skiing in the woods. You know, you're off the trail, you're doing your own thing. You're doing sharp turns to try to avoid the trees. And then you, you meet up back with the trail at the bottom at the end um, and come back with everybody else. My favorite part of this Peggio was like right at the end when Jerry wound everybody down and then they like come back and roar for the last 10 seconds to the finish line. I thought that was beautiful. Number 11, Peggio on Heady version. Wow. I mean, that, that that's fitting. I, th- this song has a lot of the things that you would want in like a particularly compelling Peggio. And the, what you just described is one of them because this song can be quite slow and, you know, passionate and emotional, but it can also have some really kind of fiery moments, um, especially Jerry does a lot of soloing like way down the neck of his guitar in this song, not just in the show, but like historically. And so you get a um, just kind of a wide variety in what the playing can, can and maybe should sound like on a great Peggio. And this kind of contains those multitudes that you'd want in an elite, a top Peggio. Next up is Mama Tried. This one has an absolutely rollicking tempo. Yeah. Like they are pushing this one to the limits. Bob is singing. His singing is super fiery and his playing is just as fiery. Like his playing matches what he's doing vocally. I think that he is kind of the standout performer on this song, but it's just, you know, really good from, from everyone. I think. Yeah. Welcome to the party, Keith. I hadn't really, he hadn't really been there in the first four songs, but he he sounded excellent on this Mama Tried. A top Mama Tried, number seven. Wow. According to the masses. Okay, I'm glad yeah. the masses like this show as much as we do. Oh, oh, they do. Just wait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not really much more to say about Mama Tried. Not a song that really necessarily warrants or requires like a ton of analysis, but it is just a, a really nice version. No, the the one thing is that it it transitions right into Mexicali blues. Oh yeah, expert transition. Yeah, the transition's good, and and the Mexicali's good too. Yeah, kind of like the Mama Tried. It's just like a tight little version that they just yeah. kind of nail. Yeah, and I thought Keith's little piano ditty at the end was a fun time, and they kind of keep that energy going right into a finiculi finicula, an absolutely 
ripping one. By the I know, dude. I one of my notes is I think this is the goat. <laughs> I do, I yeah. First of all, why is Funiculi Funicula not on Heady version? Can we get it on there? I don't know why. I I was thinking maybe this might be a top five one, and it's not even present. I mean, they played it like seven to a dozen times, something like that. Let's get it on there. Come on. Come on, folks. Masses. What are we doing? Do your thing. I'd like to know if this is the code. <laughs> I mean, I it is it is like a kind of like you're saying, like it's a rip inversion. It's also pretty long. Like they they really kind of let it, you know, get some space and and they let it cook a bit, which is really nice. The crowd was loving Mexicali blues. Like they were mm-hmm. so pumped for that song. And then they kind of keep that energy up for Funiculi Funicula. And then the crowd is you know, continues the turn off the lights chant and Bob starts clapping with them. He's, he's, you know, he's part of the masses there. He's like, let's do it. Turn off the lights. Yeah. So this is the moment where they, they talk back to the administration. They're like, Hey, us again, like this is still an issue. And this is what I was talking with Phil getting aggressive. He's like, turn off the lights, dummy, (laughs) like as (laughs) aggressive as he can. And and then the crowd goes wild for Phil calling the dummy. And my first, the first time I listened to it, I was like, that's a little odd for like the deadhead community to, to kind of, you know, get on the, the administration's backs. And then I thought about it and I was like, wait, hang on. This is a show at a college campus. So like the college kids and they see these rock stars calling the, you know, the administration, the, the man air yeah. quotes dummies. And they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, <laughs> fuck you guys too. So I, uh, the second time it, that thought hit me and it, totally makes sense why the crowd would just be like yeah turn off the lights dummy fuck you like yeah hell yeah go. they're raging against the machine man exactly yep got to so yeah um i think that that's a very kind of compelling moment and uh, a cool little bit of late 70s pushing back against the man so shout out to you if you were one of the people in the audience and shout out to phil <laughs> uh, um yeah, classic classic Duke not turning off the lights. They don't want their people to have too good of a time. <laughs> Go Deeks. <laughs> Go Deeks. <laughs> um, we kind of right. talked about how all those songs are ripping. We're going to get into a ripping four, well, five song run to end set one. Yeah, absolutely. So the run that Dave's talking about, we only have a few songs left in set one. We get Road Jimmy, then New Minglewood Blues, Loser, and then Lazy Lightning into Supplication. So that's kind of how they close out set one. So starting with Ro Jimmy, Donna's back on the stage now. She's back involved. She'd stepped off for a couple songs. This is a really nice version of this song, I think. You know, the last one I was not as crazy about, even though I'm a big Ro Jimmy head. But the drums are right on time in this performance. Bill has these cool little roles throughout the song that are really perfect. And Mickey's accompaniment, especially during the not too fast and not too slow part where they break it down and slow everything down. Mickey's drumming is really, really good during that too. And then they go absolutely bananas on the drums in the back half of this song. Yes. Um, which kind of matches like some really funky guitar playing from Jerry. Like the fact that they are playing just as much as they are. Um, and I mean that like literally they're playing all of the drums during that back half of the song. Right. But it doesn't sound sneakery. Somehow they like march it along and like you said, hit every piece of equipment without, without it sounding jumbled and chaotic. I don't know how they pulled it off, but I, I enjoyed the, enjoyed the hell out of it. Me too. 
the drumming itself doesn't sound chaotic, but the entire mix of music sounds pretty chaotic. There's just a lot going on at the end of this song, I, I think. I mean, I guess your mileage may vary. I don't think in a bad way. I just think that there's so much happening. There's so much sound coming from that stage um, on the back half of the song. But it's it's really good. It makes for a kind of a funky, unique, I think a pretty unique Ro Jimmy, to be honest. Um, Jerry's solo is absolutely soaring. And then I love the little like trilling that Bob is doing at the end of it. There's this kind of cool little trill that he's playing as kind of like the like aftermath, like in the in the wake of Jerry's really, really good solo in this song. So I think that that's kind of a cool little interplay between the two of them, in addition to the really good interplay between the the drummers that we get during the song. There were like two peaks. The first is that solo after the like five-ish minute mark that you're talking about. And then mm-hmm. the build back up at the very end. I don't know. I I wrote, I think they went Tiger again, because <laughs> I think they did it twice in the same song. That's, that's I, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I think everything about this was really, really good, including Donna. She's great too. Do you want to guess where this is on Heady version for Rose Jimmy's? It's Rose so Jimmy. unique. It's so unique that I feel like it's going to be pretty up there. I would say 18th. Number three. Whoa. The bronze so, medal. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think that's about right. Yeah, makes sense. So the number three road Jimmy. That's probably why uh, Jonathan loves this so much, being the road Jimmy head that he is. A, that's right. I forgot and then, about that. Yeah. Uh, 1978 road Jimmy's being like these powerhouse versions like this one. It makes sense that this tour would really suit him. Yeah. I feel bad. I don't have a lot of timestamps in my notes because I've heard this show a bunch of times and I really love it. But when I was like, to prepare for this, I just watched the video and like, you know, examined it like a text and like really kind of <laughs> got into it. But as a result, I don't have a lot of timestamps written down in the individual songs because it's all in like a three plus hour video. And so it just kind of felt fruitless to write down, you know, right. at one hour, 23 minutes and 14 seconds. Like that's doesn't, <laughs> that's not going to, no one's going to go look for that stuff. So that's why I don't have a lot of timestamps here, folks. Um, anyways, uh, from here, from road, Jimmy, we go into new Minglewood. What what are your thoughts on this, Dave, as our, our resident Minglewood head? I thought it was pretty good. The drumming is exceptional. There it's very energetic, and there's just enough offbeat notes to keep you off your toes. On your toes? Keep you on your toes. Keith played it a little safe on this version, but Bob and Jerry weren't gonna let that happen. Bob goes high on the rhythm guitar during the solo, and Jerry takes it away with some Indian bead string playing. I thought it was pretty good i thought it it paled a little to the road jimmy but it like kept the chain going with the other things that came next of just like crisp good playing 
This song is uh, the point in time at, toward the end of the first set where it seems like everyone is just having the time of their lives. And I think that, that makes it more compelling to me. The Indian bead string solo that you're talking about, which is after the first verse, absolutely smokes. That's like a real, real great moment. Um, Keith, the run that he does down the keys before Jerry picks a solo back up. So it's like Jerry starts soloing and then Keith is playing and then does like a, you know, slides his hand down the whole keyboard and then Jerry like picks the solo back up and just takes us even higher. There's a great moment where that happens. But toward the end of this song, you can tell that Jerry and Bobby are loving this song so much. They're both like smiling and just look really happy. And they're both like dancing around the stage while they're playing it, which you don't see all the time. And then at the end, Jerry does this like Pete Townsend type, like really emphatic hit and crouch. Like he like strums and does like this very rock star type crouch to like punctuate the song at the end. And you just don't see that from him that often, like being that emotive on stage. And so I feel like that is kind of infectious to the whole group because then Bobby starts doing more stuff like that. Like Bobby is like jumping all around the stage during the show. He's doing all these like kind of like power jumps, like jumping forward and like emphasizing these hits. Yes. Um, and just how fun it looks makes me like it even more. They do some other Pete Townsend stuff later, but we'll talk yeah, about that much in later. set too. Okay, so I think it's a really good Minglewood. It's interesting that I think I probably liked it more than you did, that Minglewood. That, I don't know if that would be a first, and I'm happy you do. I'm happy to spread the Minglewood love. <laughs> um, I, apparently the masses didn't think too highly of this one. Not, oh, no, not, they they did. I mean, number 35 for a song that they played the shit hundreds out of. Hundreds of times. So, yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. All right, nice. Uh, the next song is Loser. So I think it's, I mean... Like all of these songs, like like you're saying, Road Jimmy through Lazy Lightning and Supplication, it's like if you told me that any of these were in like the top 10 versions on Heady Version, I'd be like, yes, that makes sense. <laughs> um, this one's no exception. The probably like the last four minutes of this song is just like a perfect rendition of Loser for me. I love the drumming. Billy's keeping time on his hi-hat and just like hitting his snare, like kind of on the edge. And then... He's just got like a little bounce to it. But then what Mickey's doing around that is just working those toms in a super satisfying way. Like less is more uh, with this song in a lot of ways with, with that. I love what they're doing. Keith's playing is really nice. And then we get some really kind of good fill bombs throughout the song too. Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially in the second half of the song. Yeah. Where Phil just like basically just doesn't stop doing those for the rest of the song. Yeah. So, um, I think it's really good. The The moment right before Come to Daddy on an Inside Straight, I commend you all to go watch the video of that moment because Jerry looks like he is just having the time of his life and it really adds to the viewing experience. Um, the playing right after that segment kind of kicks up even a notch from there and Jerry just like is absolutely making his guitar cry with this wonderfully deliberate solo. It's kind of the anti-Indian beat string. Like he's not doing that thing where he's just like, you know, taken off. He's it's more, you know, intentional. He's all the, both of his hands are like on the neck of his guitar and he's just really kind of patiently working that thing. Um, just, it's like, he's, you know, pulling those notes out, like, you know, wringing them from the guitar. I just think it's a really excellent version of Loser. So do I. So do the masses. They thought it was the number 13th ranked loser on Heady version. 
Lucky number 13. Okay, nice. Yeah. But you you hit the nail on the head. Patient beginning that builds into an impressive intensity with I think Keith kind of stealing the show in the second half of the song with these like grand slow piano slides. Yeah. I enjoyed everything about that loser. I think that Keith's playing on this song leads into like Lazy Lightning and Supplication to close the first set is one of his high points of this show. He sounds great during these two songs. And yeah. Donna is loving Lazy Lightning. She is dancing her <laughs> ass off during this song. So I thought that this was a really nice Lazy Lightning supplication. I feel like we have to talk about them together because it's kind of hard to divine. It's hard not to, yeah. Yeah, and where one ends and the other begins. But there's this really, really long Indian beat string solo um, that like bridges the gap between the two that ends right when Bob starts with the ooh, 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 and then like into the supplication. That is just phenomenal. I think that it's just a really great lazy lightning and supplication. This is the third most common set one closer of 78, only behind the music never stopped and deal. So it kind of does like ground you in where you are. You know, they didn't play this a ton yeah. in all their eras, but God, it sounds good. And it made me go listen to other lazy lightning and supplications to like have a basis of comparison because I was like, is this just like the greatest one that's ever happened? Or am I just, have I just not heard them in a long time? And so I'm biased, but I listened to a couple others and I think this was my favorite that I heard. I mean, it's just, the tempo is perfect. The playing is really, really good. And it's just like such a fiery end to the first set to send people into the set break being like, I guarantee you so many of the conversations at the set break were like, just started with this word whoa <laughs> you know like oh man yeah um they sent the people into the set break happy for sure they did they did and i'm glad you enjoyed it you know who cares about the number but number 10 on heady version for the the combo so top 10 totally deserved so this was good stuff no more specifics for you on any any other shout outs of people that you wanted to give for that song yeah, everyone's doing well. Bob and Phil's playing in the rhythm in the lazy lightning part stood out to me. And then there's like frantic, trippy drumming in the supplication part that I think is what was helping make Donna dance. Not frantic in a bad way, but just like very quick and a little all over the place. But it it really worked well. And I, I enjoyed the supplication a little bit more. I don't know why. I think usually when I listen to this song, it's the other way around. But this time I really enjoyed the back half and yeah, put me in a good mood into the set break. That weird, the drumming, I think, I think it's Mickey that you're talking about. It's on the Tums. It's like, the, yeah, the it tums. is. It's like this, like, it's just like, it's slightly irregular and abnormal in a right. It's, it's just really, really interesting and great. Yeah, man. Well, that's the conclusion of the first set, which was excellent. And I don't know this, I guess it's worth discussing 
when we get to the end of the second set, but I think the first set might even outshine the second set of this show. Yeah. The I the first few times I listened to this, I was like, I think it's no question set one is more fun to listen to than set two. Now I'm a little more on the fence, but I think that this run of Road Jimmy through Supplication stands out as the peak of the show. Yeah, which Maybe is Maybe not the most fun, but the peak of the show. The second set is so, so, so good. So it's like actually mm-hmm. kind of crazy to say like, oh, the first set's better. But it's like the first set is a 10 and the second set is a 9.9 sort of a thing. It's really kind of just what's the term I'm looking for? Like splitting hairs, I guess a little yeah. bit. And the second set just gets off to a, a rip roar and start with an unbelievably good Bertha to start. Second most common set to opener of 1978 behind uh, Samson and Delilah, which opened set two from the first show that we talked about from 1978 from February at the Unidome. Oh man. I mean, Okay, a couple notes on this one. Number one, watch the video and watch how Donna is dancing. And you know this is the good stuff. She is just dancing her heart out up there. Bobby and Phil have all these like really cool punctuations throughout the song where Jerry will get to like what seems like a natural conclusion on something and they'll just punctuate it with these really emphatic notes or little little adornments that sound great. And then Jerry's solo is phenomenal he is really feeling it the one time note that i did write down and i think that the reason why i said this earlier is because i did have this time in mind one hour 23 minutes and 20 seconds go find that point of the video and watch jerry's like guitar face as he's playing a solo on this song and he like can't help but to have this like very warm happy smile that just like comes across his face and he just lights up like he is loving the solo that he's playing on this and i'm just envisioning like if you were at the show and you were close enough to really be able to see his face and like see his facial features, how much that would just light you up to see how happy he looks during it already, like a super fun song. And then to see him that happy, I think would be an extremely fun and memorable moment. Yeah. And a, a longer version of a fun song. This is like almost an eight minute Bertha, which I'm here for the more, the more Bertha, the better. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. And I, I noted that Bob stood out here as, as doing good stuff with with the rhythm. Uh, number 19, Bertha on Heady Version. High yeah, up there. That is high up there. They take Bertha right into good loving. Really tidy little transition between the two. Donna and Jerry's background vocals from the beginning are great. And to me, because Bertha is you know frequently a set one opener too, right. it, it kind of did feel to me like they were like restarting the show with this combo of Bertha into good loving. And I mean that in a good way. It's like, all right, we had a set break and now we've got a, a second crack at this. Like, let's, let's, you know, give it the gusto again. They opened set to 27 times with this combo of songs with Bertha into Good Lovin'. All but one of those 27 were between May 77 and January 79. It was just once in 79. So you really have like a 18 month period ish where they did the, this to open the second set a lot. And then Pretty much never again. One time in summer of 93, they did. My previous favorite version of this is from the Red Rocks show, one of the two Red Rocks shows later on this summer of 78, which is a really, really good version. But I think this one surpassed it for me. Like, I'm usually not a big good loving person. I don't really have a ton of notes usually when we talk about this song. I have like seven bullet points for this 
because I think this is a really great version of Good Lovin'. Bobby's having the time of his life. So is Jerry. Donna can't stop dancing and watching Jerry solo. Like throughout the show, she's usually like kind of dancing and looking around the stage. Jerry starts soloing on Good Loving and she completely turns her body and is looking at him, just like watching what he's doing and dancing. She's a fan just like the rest of us at that point. You know, she's yeah. not singing. She's just having a, a great time. Keith is running all over his um, keys throughout this show. It's yeah, up and down. Like every other measure, Keith is sliding all over the piano, <laughs> Yeah. Which is great. It is. And then there's just so many theatrics. Like Jerry is like really, you know, getting into it and doing some pretty demonstrative stuff up there, which is making Bobby kind of do the same thing. I dare you to watch the video of this show and not smile. It's so <laughs> like of this song specifically, it's so delightful to watch. And I just think like a perfect high energy one, two punch to open the second set. And then you hear what comes after it and it's like, yeah, they had to take a break. They had to like catch their breath for a minute after yeah. how high and how hot these two songs are. My favorite part of this song is like right, right at the end of, I think it's the second verse, like at the two minute 40 second mark, Jerry does this like bend on the guitar. Um, my only critique with this song is this song was the most, the biggest culprit of the drummers being pretty sneakery. I feel like they were just doing a little too much. Like they were trying to bring too much energy to the table. They bought into what everyone else was doing. Like, right. You got to pick it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Number 28, Good Lovin' on Heady Version. Wow. I mean, they played that song like 400 times. So that's really saying something. The crowd gives it up big time at the conclusion of Good Lovin'. They really let the band hear it. Um, it's it's really, really great. They take a really nice long break after that big explosion of energy in Good Lovin', like I think like three minutes long. Keith is standing up and drinking a beer out of a pint glass, which is kind of funny to watch. And Bob spends like the entire time getting in tune. Billy and Keith start having some sort of a conversation. Then you see Big Steve come up on the stage and start talking to Billy about something. I don't know. I'm wondering if maybe he busted a drum head during Good Lovin' and they had to come and fix it oh. or something. Because yeah. it's like a real long break before they get into Must Have Been the Roses. It's a really good version. It plays a nice role in bringing the energy down just a bit before then we crank it all the way back up in the songs that come afterward. But um, I don't have many specific notes. I just thought that it was a, a really good version. No, it was it was really easy to sit back and enjoy this. So I don't have too much notes either. Uh, the rhythm of Bob and Phil really made this an enjoyable ride. They kind of just help like bob you along on your whitewater rafting trip. We just came down a whole bunch of energetic rafts and now we're kind of like bobbing along on the river before we go down more, more uh, waterfalls and stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was very easy to just kind of sit back and enjoy a, a song that I'm not super high on, but I just enjoyed like, okay, yeah, we calmed down a little bit and this is, this is nice. Yeah. We get to um, catch our breath too. Right. Yeah. Must have been the roses is also just like good loving the number 28 mark on heady version. Okay. Probably my favorite part of the song is at the end. There's this little huddle that Jerry, Bobby and Phil do. I posted a video of it on our Twitter account. So you can go mm -hmm. see it if you'd like, they do this little huddle and Phil's doing like devil horns and it gets, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I posted it and said that whoever had the funniest description of their conversation would get a shout out on the show. Um, so shout out to at Marty Henriksen, whose the comment was, what are we doing here? We're in a band, Phil. We are. Yes, we are. Nod your head. If you understand Phil, 
I think that what they're doing is planning out where the where they want to take the set list from here. Because Jerry is like talking to Bobby and then you see him like usher Phil over and then they start talking and Jerry's like, you know, stroking his beard like a, like a wise old sage. Like a scholar. And, yeah. Yeah. And then he, you know, brings Phil back in and they have this other conversation. Then Phil nods and then does these little devil horns and then walks away. And then they get into a jam that brings them to the conclusion of this set. There are no more breaks from here onward. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that's what was going on, but I have no idea. But either way, that little huddle was enjoyable for me to watch. So from there, they go into estimated profit. Um, In the beginning, this is almost like two different songs to me. In the beginning part, there are these like cage rattling toms that really stand out, I think, and are pretty interesting. And then Jerry just starts, you know, slowly piece by piece working on this big old Indian beat string that becomes kind of the focal point of the song throughout the middle third-ish. And then the back end, there's just really, really nice playing from Phil. And I, I mean that literally. It's very nice. It's like uplifting sounding bass from him, which carries us into Eyes of the World. It feels more natural there, what he's doing on the bass. But just because it, just because that's the case doesn't make it any less satisfying in uh, Estimated Profit. So I feel like this is a, a nice version of Estimated. It's like 12 minutes long. So they, they really give it some space and you know kind of see where they're going to take it. So I think that it's a a really nice one. Yeah, they jam out the second half of the song, but they don't get too I don't know, spacey. Like they no. it's kind and sweet and delightful. I, I noted that Phil took over at the six and a half minute mark and carried the torch over into eyes too. Um a, a little not slow, but slower estimated profit. Yeah. And not a slow eyes of the world. <laughs> no. And I was, I was thinking like, I was like, oh man, maybe this is going to be like a kind of a spacey, you know, 74 style eyes after this. And no, it's not. No. It's like, it's interesting that they crank up the tempo like 20 beats per minute. As soon as they transition into eyes of the world, it feels like Bob is the first one to try to bring them there actually even a little bit, but Jerry wants to keep playing on estimated for like another minute or so. And Phil's just like, whatever, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing on the bass either way. So, <laughs> And then they get into Eyes, and it, it just has so much heat. The opening jam is like four minutes long, and it's just like, I mean, everything about this song is fast. Jerry's vocal delivery even is pretty fast, like the mm-hmm. way he's singing it. And then the playing in the last couple minutes of Eyes of the World, like the last two minutes, gets especially like up-tempo and breathless. Like they are just burning this song. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's real fast. Until that point that you're talking about, it's like Phil is the conductor of the train and he's he's all over his the neck of his bass and he's doing everything. And then at that point that you were talking about, like around the 10 minute mark, it's like Bob and Jerry weirdly keep it going with like these weird, like from Bob anyway, this like weird slide rhythm thing he's doing. Not like yeah. a slide guitar where he puts the thing on, but like the like, chord slides that he's doing on the guitar um and jerry kind of like looks over and picks up on it and incorporates some of those slides into his indian bead string so that was it was cool to watch and very very cool to listen to yeah very impressive like nuanced playing by him and Mm -hmm. picking up on what his rhythm guitarist is doing and then saying oh i can do that too yeah i'll I'll take that yeah yeah (laughs) do you want to guess where this one is on heady version it's so fast. I feel like there are probably some eyes heads like me who like a spacier area version. So I'm going to say 40th. Pretty close. Number 69. 
Oh, nice. Nice. So from Eyes of the World, we go into drums. And drums and drums and drums <laughs> yeah. and 26 minutes of drums. I would call it drums, etc. too, because it's not always drums. There's some yeah, weird shit true. happening in drums. Real quick before we talk about it, Eyes of the World is the most common pre-drums slash drums in space song, both of 1978 and of all time. So that surprised oh, wow. me Oh, wow. Okay. That's kind of good to know. 26 minutes of drums though, Dave, because there's no space in this era. So we get just tw- right. a drum palooza. <laughs> Mickey is playing all sorts of different stuff. And you can see in the video, he's just like wandering around the stage playing whatever he can find pretty much. Um, yeah. And I'm here for that. Then Big Steve and the road crew come out and they start playing like cowbell and all other sorts of stuff behind Billy. And at that point, Billy is on his feet and legitimately like dancing in the middle section of the song. Like he's up and dancing and just banging on stuff. And Mickey has now moved around the stage and he's on the other side of Billy from where he's been throughout the whole show. And the road crew's there. Then even further in the drum section, Jerry comes out and starts doing some of his own drumming. (laughs) So is he on like a, I don't think it's a steel drum, but it's like kind of a higher pitched thing that he's wailing on. I have no idea what it is, but yeah, he's, he's feeling it. So this is just an absolute drum palooza. I'm very here for it, but it is extremely unique. Yeah, it is unique. Um, like some other songs before it, number 28 drums on heavy version. feels about right. Like we were talking about with that, um, flippity jibberty, uh, in the space, it feels like when there's something unique that happens in drums and I don't know how unique it was that Jerry or big Steve or whoever would come out to help them on drums in this era but it feels unique to me and again another one of those things where it's like if you don't see the video you'd have no idea and i know you feel this way too but when you watch drums live in person that experience is so great so getting to watch this on youtube you know kind of the quasi same experience of getting to see it and see all the effort and all the players it yeah it made it a better experience for me yeah and it's cool to see how like 45 years ago relatively speaking how much smaller the drum setup was than it is now right yep like they did still have a lot of equipment up there but it pales in comparison to the massive drum rig that they bring with them on the road is dead and company now yeah that's true um from drums they go into trucking this is the first time in 1978 that they took drums into trucking and they would do it three more times throughout the year. Certainly not the most frequent of this era, but you know, it works. I think that it's kind of a cool way to come out of um, drums, especially the beginning riff. It's like kind of a cool way to kind of transition the crowd back into being ready to hear some more music. Yeah. They like whistle into the start of trucking on, on this one. Like they, they get everybody Like, hey, no kidding. We're restarting. Yeah. And here we go. So it's interesting. Um, At the beginning of this song, Phil 
moves up to between Bobby and Jerry. He's on Donna's mic and just loving the fun of playing right up front with his friends and singing along. And he's just belting it out. Yeah. He is as into it as, as he sounds because he sounds into it with how well he's playing too. Um, One of the coolest parts of the video is like during the long strange trip part, Phil is like singing his soul out and Jerry is just sitting there smiling at him, loving every second of it. Jerry looks loaded during this song. <laughs> yeah, I think before he went back out to play the drums, he he might have taken taken one or two things. Done done whatever he was doing. I think everyone did because I think that's part of why Phil has given it the gusto during this song. Everyone's a little bit extra. There's a little bit of an extra pep in their step yeah. um, during trucking. But yeah, Jerry looks so loaded in the beginning of the song that he's like barely even playing guitar. Like he's just kind of standing up there. Um, and then by the end of the song, he's found it again. He's back. He's back, you know, fully within himself oh, yeah. and maybe even a bit without of himself, because by the end of the song, him and Bobby are doing their best impersonation of the who they're doing full on, you know, windmills. And I don't know who does it first. I think it's I think Jerry does it first and this is going to sound weird. I think he does it on accident. Yeah. And the crowd is like, Oh, like when he gets the windmill, he's like, Oh, you like that? And then he really starts going for it with the full on. And then Bob starts doing it too. And then Bob's like, Oh, I want to do that too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That looks fun. Even Billy starts doing his best to impress him because at one point he does a classic Keith moon move where he bounces one of his sticks off a drum. It goes flying in the air and then he catches it and smashes a cymbal. It's great. Like it's yeah. so, so showman-y. Um, the showmanship is really on point from Billy. So they really kind of channeled their inner who during this song and with great results, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's, laughing and having a great time on stage the crowd is really really into this like basically every time one of the guitarists does a windmill they they go nuts mm-hmm. um yeah i They're really enjoyed this truck in i i'm surprised that it didn't come out of drums in space like a little more often because i think it really gets you right back up masses enjoyed it number 39 trucking on heady version maybe a little too low but Maybe so, the, this is the one where I think maybe the video is biasing my uh, listening experience. Fair. Based on all of the heady version ratings that you've given me so far, I think that it's pretty fair to say that the masses consider this a top 50 Grateful Dead show of all time. I think you can go even a little higher than top 50. Yeah. Um, I mean, based yeah, on I think like, this is like a, a, a well, well regarded show. Which is crazy because usually the ones that are that high are ones that have been officially released so usually yeah really goes to show what a what a special show this is again from trucking they take it right into warfrat i don't have a ton of notes on this i will say that this is a like the solo after um i'm sure she's been true to you that verse mm-hmm. there's some real heat behind it and phil is really matching Jen, jerry's energy like to a t with the way he's playing on that part yeah um, you know, this can be a very mournful song, although the middle section does usually have a little bit more pep in its step. But, you know, I thought this was a really good and somewhat unique version for for how how fiery it got. Yeah, so did I. You kind of touched on it, but usually that I'll get up and fly away part comes in a little hotter. Whereas here, it's very like mellow and smooth through like three quarters of the song. And I had actually typed out a delightfully peaceful version and then i was like oh, oh okay forget it this is an insane because <laughs> by the end yeah they 
slam it to a hundred miles an hour and send it all the way with some raw energy. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. The solo and Phil like throw some fuzz on his bass for the solo. I don't know if that's just by going up high or like he changed something, but like he threw some fuzz on it that really brought it to another level. Yeah. When he starts dropping those bombs during the do, 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 do. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah. Really good version of Warfrat. I really like that song a lot. Next is the set to closer around and around the most common by far for 1978. Half of their shows um, in 1978 closed with around and around. So, you know, although you talked about how many of them were at a college Mm -hmm. that kind of, I can see that a little more now. This is a good like college show closer. You know, it's funny that you say that because they only closed 148 shows with this song and 40 of those times were in 1978 when they were doing a lot of college shows. So I feel like maybe they agreed with you. Yeah. This is a really fun version of this song. I think especially during the back half, like kind of from Donna's scream onward, this is like a really energetic and really fun version. I kind of like screams. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's big. She lets one loose for sure. I kind of like when Bob and Donna start to like kind of take on like a pseudo round delivery on this. It's not fully like, you know, row, row, row your boat round where it's like, you know, everyone starts to get stacked on top of each other, but it is a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that energy going on with the way that they're singing together. And then I think Keith really shines toward the end of the song as well. His playing is fantastic. Yeah. Um, speaking of Donna, you've talked about her like dancing real quick, watching this part of the video. What I thought was beautiful to watch was basically every time the band's getting really into it and not just on around and around, but kind of peppered throughout the night, she like dances and turns to like smile at Keith. And it's just like a beautiful moment every, every single time she does it, which is like in the dozens of it's like, wow, I love you and you love me and we're doing what we love. It's just like pure bliss and happiness, like on her face. It's so sweet to watch, but you can, she does it like four times during around and around. Um, because they're going crazy playing this so well. <laughs> yeah, really, really good version of Around and Around. Kind of like Good Love, and it's, it's one where it's like, man, you didn't have a ton of notes on this, but this one is it's warranted because the playing is so great. Yeah. Um, and this also, we should talk about this one, the cleanest transitions where they go from like the, the normal fast speed of the song to that you know, half time, or maybe it's double time. I don't know, mm. whatever it is, but like no bumps in the road of like high energy to higher energy. Yeah. Um, they, they really pulled it off. Well, well, uh, number 16 around and around on heady version. Damn. Yeah. All right. Maybe, maybe this is like actually like a top 30 show then based on what we're seeing, because I have to imagine the next song up is the number one us blues. It should be. You, you imagine correctly. It is. Um, it, Good. <laughs> and I don't think it's just because we have a video of it that biases people when they watch it. It's a phenomenal It's because U- this US is blues. such an energetic U.S. blues. Yeah.
So this is the perfect tempo U.S. Blues for me. What do you think about that? I agree. I hadn't even noticed it, but yeah, it's like fast, but not too fast. Yeah. It's like Goldilocks. Yeah, it is. It's the Goldilocks U.S. Blues. Great encore. They encored 26 shows in 78 with this. It's the most common of 78. It's also the most common encore of their career by far. 294 times they encored a show with U.S. Blues. So for this to be number one really speaks volumes. The real charm here when you watch the video is how obvious it is that Jerry is having the time of his life. Obviously over the years, he's been the most captivating member of the grateful dead for the masses. And so to see him having so much fun, I think is really, really enjoyable. And Bobby too. Bob is loving this song. He cannot stop smiling and he keeps like getting as close as he can to Jerry and doing all these like different moves. But there, there are like five or six just like indelible moments throughout this video. Like the gimme five line and Jerry raises his hand toward Bob uh, somewhat ironically, because he doesn't even have five fingers, but even still um, that moment is delightful. But like that level of ham from Jerry is not something that you normally get. Um, He's doing other stuff too, which is like unique and rock star E that you don't usually picture him doing. Like he's still doing more windmills. He's like, he's like doing hand stuff with the crowd, you know, like he's, and to the band hamming it up yeah for for this and what's crazy is that he finds the space to do all that stuff within the context of even if you don't i mean this most people maybe have not seen the video of this or many people haven't by the time they voted for it on heady version just listening to the audio is undeniable and one thing that stands out in the audio more so than the youtube version is phil phil's bass is really perfectly mixed in the soundboard at least the charlie miller soundboard his bass is like perfect and you can really hear how how much he is just grooving on this song. Um, he's killing it. Jerry's crushing it. Bob's playing is fantastic. The drumming is really, really good. Um, I don't hear Keith as much as the others in this, but when I do hear him, I like what he's doing. And it just it's just a perfect US blues. Great encore. The band leader stuff, when I was saying earlier that Jerry's doing a lot of band leader stuff, you can see a lot of it on this song where he starts like waving that he's gonna like, you know, he's like waving to the band to like bring it down, like hit this one together. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like that going on throughout this song. It's the thing that first drew me to this show was watching this video. And it's a video that I watch all the time and that I show people who are, you know, dead heads or, or dead curious in my life because I think it's so fun. (laughs) It has captured a piece of my heart. So shout out to this U S blues. Yeah. And almost all U S blues are like energetic and upbeat and a good, you know, quicker tempo, it's a song that always has a lot of energy, but there's something different going on here. And I, I mean, I don't know what it is, but the, that idea of like, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts saying that's definitely what's going on here because the, the, the parts that make up the whole are great, but there's just an energy pouring out of everyone that gives this, gives this like a volcanic eruption of, energy and a good time so yeah uh, like no question that this should be where it is as the the top of the podium i'm also really happy with the masses i was really worried when i said that i was like it should be the number one that you were going to be like what's like number 30 and i was going to be like god masses we were doing so well but um the fact that the heady version voters our beloved friends the masses have elevated this to where it should be as the number one u.s blues yeah chef's kiss absolutely chef's kiss to the masses 
All right, Dave. Well, that's a great, great show in Grateful Dead history. This episode is being released on April 11th, 2023, one day before the 45th anniversary of this great show. Um, I'm going to put some things in the show notes. Definitely take a look. We've got a link to the full show video, a link to the US Blues Encore video if you just want to watch that. A great post from Lost Live Dead on the Dead's history in North Carolina. Grateful Seconds has a great post about this show that you should take a look at. And on dead.net, there's a really cool picture of the band on stage from the Duke University archive. Um, It's a colorized version, so you can see what everyone looked like. Billy's wearing a Duke shirt that I think he then gave to Bobby because there are a bunch of pictures of Bobby wearing the exact same shirt from Hmm. uh, years in the future. Cool, cool, small stage setup, like Keith is like right on top of Jerry and Phil just like has this little nook kind of between the drummers and Keith that he's kind of settled into. Um, so it's kind of cool that they, they brought this much power from such a, you know, unsuspecting place. I guess, you know, not to say that my beloved, you know, town of Durham where I live is a small town. It's not, there are hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people who live here, but it is not, you know, New York or San Francisco or even right. Charlotte, you know, or Atlanta. And we were talking about this with our friend Zach uh, of Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper fame this past week. Um, He was talking about a dead show in Rochester. And I was like, for whatever reason, they crushed that town. Like when they were in Rochester, their shows were all really good. And he was like, that's something that's like really unique and great about the dead compared to Led Zeppelin is that their best shows can come anywhere at any time. And I was saying right. the fact that their th- probably three most famous shows are in Veneta, Oregon and Ithaca, New York and English town, New Jersey, <laughs> I think speaks volumes. Right. Um, and then like two of our favorite shows from 78 now are from <laughs> University of Northern Iowa. Where's right. that? <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the town in Iowa that it's in, but it, you know, there aren't big towns in Iowa. So it's, you know, it's not Des Moines. It's somewhere else. Cedar Falls. Cedar Falls. Not Cedar Rapids. Cedar Falls. Um, <laughs> and this one is in Durham, uh, D-U-R-M, North Carolina. Um, like, it's just so great that these little unsuspecting shows, you know, you just never know what you're going to get with this band. And this one is a really delightful show. Uh, what are some final thoughts from you? Two quick final thoughts. One, uh, you talked about Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Uh, you did a guest appearance on that show talking about a band, a different band you're big into, Pink Floyd. So if you're really into Pink Floyd and you're looking for a two hour and 20 minute deep dive ranking all 15 of their albums, um, go support our friend Zach and go listen to Alex. Uh, get a little controversial with their Pink Floyd album rankings. Um, yeah. So go check that out. The second thing and the last thing is we always play a game where we take one song from the show and add it onto an imaginary playlist. So what song from your hometown show are you picking from Durham, North Carolina? It's got to be U.S. Blues. There are others that are real contenders, but at the end of the day, um, I'm taking the U.S. Blues from this song and I'm adding it to the end of my playlist and any song that I add from here on out is going to go before that because this is the encore in my imaginary playlist from this point forward. The encore of all encores. Absolutely. I'm happy to let you have it. And how's this for a little, you're taking Jack straw. Good vibes. I'm going to, you took the back end. I'm going to take the front end and take that Jack straw and 
bookend this show. Look at those and bookends. It, it hurts my heart to not take that road, Jimmy, because uh, that road, Jimmy, is really something else. But yeah. But we only get one. Rules are rules. We only get one. So that is fair. Yeah, what a show, Dave. Uh, I'm glad that we got to talk about it. Our next episode is, we said that we were going to do this at the beginning of the year. We're going to, every quarter, so every three months, we're going to do a WP in 30, so a quick hitter, 30-minute show about the studio albums of The Grateful Dead. So as Dave said, I was just on another podcast talking about all of Pink Floyd's albums. So that gave me some experience talking about albums rather than shows. Very different listening experience when you're trying to do it critically. Uh, Anthem of the Sun is The Grateful Dead's second album. We talked about their debut in January. We're going to talk about that second one at the end of this month. And then, little teaser, a little Easter egg. By the time that show, By the time that episode comes out, Number one, we should be getting the next edition of Dave's Picks by then. I believe volume 47? 48? 46. 46, is that right? The Portland 77 one was the last one, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that was volume 45. So you're right. Dave's Picks volume 46 will be coming out right around then. So that will be another episode that we have coming up. But also, Dead & Co. is playing New Orleans Jazz Fest at the end of the month. And then they're going to kick off their tour in earnest just a couple weeks later. We're like a month, maybe like six weeks away from the first shows of the Dead & Co. final tour. And Dave and I are going to have some fun stuff in store for you uh, around those Dead & Co. shows. So stay tuned for that. And, um, you know, I think on that note, we can bid you good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.